What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome, everybody. Stocks are mostly slipping today, although the Nasdaq is still positive. As investors are digesting another day of awful headlines, let's check on the markets right now. The Dow's down 200 points. Uh, The Nasdaq is up about two-thirds of 1%. And as you can see there, it's the semiconductors as well having a strong session up more than 1% this afternoon. Now, in terms of those headlines, let's run through them. Over 5 million people filed for jobless benefits last week, bringing the four-week total to 22 million. In fact, that's just slightly less than the total number of jobs added in this economy since 2009. Then there's the April Philly Fed Manufacturing Index coming in at minus 56.5, and that's the lowest level since 1980. We also were watching the industrials there. They're down just under 2% uh, after that report. We also, over in housing, got more weak data there. U.S. home construction collapsed 22% in March from the month before. Uh, looking at the housing market reaction, the home builders, which have been weak this week, shedding another 1%. On top of all that, New York and the U.K. both announcing they'll extend their shutdowns through mid-May. And to top it all off, the Small Business Protection Program has run out of money and household stimulus checks are now reportedly delayed due to glitches. So how is this all whipsawing stocks today? Let's head over to Bob Bassani to find out. Bob, good, mo- uh, good afternoon. I do that every time. Good afternoon, Kelly. The important thing here is we're in a narrow trading range, but bonds remain well bid, gold remains well bid, uh, and we're in a real conflict between the desire to reopen the economy and just how long it's going to take. I want to show you the S&P 500 again. Kelly showed it to you a moment ago, but uh, we came off of the the moves to the upside when Governor Cuomo came out and extended the shutdown, essentially, the stay-at-home orders until May 15th. So again, a little bit of impact there from just how long this is going to take. If you look at the sectors, it's the same ones that are having problems for a long time. The banks have been down ever since we started with the earnings season here. That normally happens, but this is even worse than normal. Energy and industrials are always down on when you have coronavirus long-term issues out there. And again, healthcare and consumer staples are outperforming. This is a very typical pattern that we've seen in the last six weeks or so. Want to remind everyone how many companies are withdrawing earnings guidance. It's getting bigger, larger numbers. Abbott, ConocoPhillips, Jack in the Box, GoPro, Bed Bath & Beyond, all saying we're not going to provide you earnings guidance for 2020. Over in Europe, Volkswagen and Audi also withdrew their earnings guidance. Finally, the stay at home still doing great. Amazon's got a new high today and Netflix has got a new high and Activision and Slack all doing a little bit better. Kelly, back to you. All right, we'll take it. Bob, thanks so much, Bob Bassani. Well, that bevy of bad news he mentioned is weighing on the market today and especially on bond yields. The 10-year yield slipping back towards record lows, holding just about 0.6% right now. And the yield curve has flattened despite the government's historic efforts to keep the economy going. Does all this portend another move lower in stocks? Joining me now with more, John Augustine, the chief investment officer at Huntington Private Bank, and Dave Harden, who is chief investment officer at Summit Global Investments. John, I'll just start with you. You know, not great signals coming from Bondland. No, the yields are getting back down to the low end of that range, Kelly. As you pointed out, the low is 54 basis points from March 9th. That is something we're watching today. And also the price of oil slipping below $20 a barrel again. So those are two things we're watching today. 
And what does that tell you about your investments? I mean, are you positioned for that or does that I mean, oil maybe isn't so much forward looking, but the bond market typically is. Yeah, no, no, no. We're positioned. We're staying balanced, diversified. That's how we came into this. We're, we're, we look at rebalancing is what we look at, certain levels in the stock market. We know oil is a much lower percentage of the S&P 500 right now. It's, it's one of the lowest sector weightings in the S&P 500, but still it has impacts on other parts of the economy. So in general, balanced, diversified, active over passive, U.S. over ex-U.S., and we're primarily staying with large caps over small. Yeah, and I see a lot of tech names on your list as well. Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon. And Dave, that's true for you as well. So, I mean, how long can Amazon remain the consensus favorite and continue to outperform in an environment like this? Well, I think it still has some room to go. We're a little bit cautious there. It's getting so big in the portfolio. Maybe trimming makes sense. But at 100 PE right now, we still see upside. I mean, everybody's still shopping online and you cannot buy but the essentials in a lot of these states that are locked down, which is all across America still and just extended by Governor Como. So we think that this is still a good position to hold in Amazon and we're happy to have it. We do not see downside surprises here. And that's what we will try to avoid. You also hold Walmart. Well, you say you don't see downside surprises for Amazon, but do you have a view, Dave, on the stock market overall and on where the economy is going here? I mean, have we been too quick to, to rebound off the lows? Well, absolutely, we have a view. And the reality is, if you, you compare this to history, there's a couple things that are for you and a couple things that are against you. The one thing that we've never had in history is such an active Fed, so an active Treasury. And now we have the stimulus cap package. But is it enough? And have we went too fast? Our view is yes. We're cautiously optimistic. We look for a rebound. We look for this a stock market long term to be what it is and what it always been as a wealth generation for, uh, for Americans. But the reality is, is that we, we're up 25% off the lows. Yeah, that's a little bit too fast, too quick for us. Um, the, the economy has terrible numbers coming out, as you've just said. The unemployment now, we've lost more jobs. If you go back to March, we've lost more jobs in a month and a half than what we've gained for the last 10 years. That's a bad position to be in. And, and we, we feel like that it's going to be more of a choppy recovery yeah. and opening than rather a real quick one. For sure. I think that reality is settling in. John Augustine, I'm curious why the David Tepper formulation no longer holds. You know, if you go back probably almost a decade now, during the early rounds of quantitative easing, he said, look, either stocks are going to go up because the economy is recovering or they're going to collapse because it's not. The Fed will come in with more support and then the then stocks will go up. Why aren't we in that kind of investing environment anymore or are we? Well, we, we think we're in a kind of, the, what's the next phase environment? So, Kelly, we know that the economic numbers are going to be bad. You pointed that out in your article today. But we know we're going to get through this. We know we're going to get back open. What we're thinking is the depth of this recession is going to be deep, no doubt about it. It's the duration that's going to matter. Same thing with employment, the duration of those unemployment claims. So what our equity team is thinking about is the other side of this. What are companies on the other side of this, as you were just talking with Dave about, th that's more of what's on our mind. We think markets are headed that direction, too. However, with one caveat, treasuries, bond markets still doing its job being skeptical in this environment. And we, we appreciate that. and We respect that. All right, uh, Dave, I'll give you the last word, uh, both kind of mentioning what's going on in the bond market. And the same kind of question I just asked John about that old Tepper formulation and why you don't think that's working right now. Well, we're just in a new environment and the Fed and how active they are. And, w and we don't know if it's going to work. 
And so there's a lot of unknowns. And with the disease that we, we've never seen before, we don't know how it's going to play out. So I think these unknowns are keeping the bond market where it is, skeptical. And it should be, because there is a lot of questions to yet be answered. Being really good companies like a Clorox, we're ba- you know everybody's bathing in Clorox. So it's definitely a growth company. A lot of healthcare companies out there are doing really, really well. Like you said, Amazon, Walmart, some really good names. Those are the names you want to be in. So if the market does go down, maybe not retest those lows, but does go down, you're in the names that you want to be in both now and long term. I just wonder about the stampede for the exits in Clorox at some point, Dave. I mean, are people really going to need more? They seem to have a decade's <laughs> worth supply right now. Well, there's a change in the change in behavior, right? We're never going back to not using Clorox. You're always going to have it on hand. You're always going to be buying it. Um, where it was before is not where it is now. Fair enough. I think you're right. I still wonder about the valuation. Anyway, gentlemen, thanks. Uh, Dave Harden, John Augustine joining me today to talk about these markets, Stockland, Bondland, and Clorox. Uh, now to the mounting toll of coronavirus on the labor market. 5.2 million more Americans did file for unemployment benefits last week, bringing the total to more than 22 million over the past month. And who is being laid off is beginning to change and to broaden. Rahel Solomon is here with more. Rahel? Hi, Kelly. So with most Americans under stay-at-home orders, many of the layoffs thus far were jobs where you interact with many other people. For example, the retail and service industries. But now, the legal field, sales, even healthcare workers that do not assist with COVID-19 patients are also seeing layoffs. Research from Oxford Economics predicts that positions in ambulatory health care and professional and business services will be among the top five declines for April job losses. Economist Martha Gimbel says that few jobs are safe. People assume that certain jobs were safe because they could be done from a distance. The problem is that someone has to be able and willing to pay you to do that work for a distance. And so now the question is not even whether or not you can do your job from home, but whether or not you're providing a service that people still want to pay for right now. And Kelly, for people fortunate enough to hold on to their jobs, well, Gimbel pointed out they'll still be affected. This is probably not the time you can expect that raise or promotion. You know, Rahel, you've done a good job covering just how inundated all these state unemployment uh, claims offices have been. And you wonder not only if people are actually receiving the money that they've already applied for, but if they've even been able to process all the new claims, you know, 22 million might understate how many have been filed. Well, that's what we've been hearing a lot of. In fact, Martha said something really interesting. She said, when I asked what could be an indicator of when we might start to level off with claims, she said the state of Pennsylvania, she said that they shut down early enough. And she said that they were actually pretty successful at getting people through the process. And so apparently watch the state of Pennsylvania. That might be an indicator of when we might start to see things slow, slow down, Kelly. Great point. You can head to that website right now. Uh, Rahel, thanks again. We appreciate it. Rahel Solomon with the latest for us. Coming up, hitting the ceiling. The Small Business Payroll Protection Program has run out of money. Will Congress act in time to replenish it? We'll dig into that. And banks are working around the clock to get that small biz money dispersed. We're going to talk to the CEO of Vista Bank about what's working, what's not, and what happens next. Plus, FANG had been the name of the game in tech investing for the past several years. But it may not work as well in a post-COVID world. We're going to Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. 
What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Look at what could replace it coming up. Welcome back. Demand for the government's small business loan program has been so enormous that the program has now officially run out of money. Kate Rogers is here with the very latest. What do we know, Kate? Hi, Kelly. Well, right now we know that over 1.6 million loans have been given those all-important SBA ETRAN numbers for loan approval from some 5,000 lenders exhausting this fund. The SBA did note that is more than 14 years' worth of loans in less than two weeks. But many questions still remain. What happens to businesses that started this process with their banks? Do they get to stay in their place in line? Also, what amount of aid could even be enough to service the nation's 30 million small businesses when this $350 billion dollars went to just 1.6 million loans. Also, how much aid has actually been paid out? It's something we continue to ask. The CEO of the Consumer Bankers Association estimated that tens of billions of dollars had been paid out in aid yesterday, adding that banks had a horrendous start with the SBA. Another layer to the story, additional funding for economic injury disaster loans has also now been paused. That program has received 4 million requests from small businesses for $383 billion in aid. But according to a senior administrator, official, Congress has only allocated $17 billion for that program. So that's another short fall right there, Kelly. Back over to you. You know, we, so this is pretty frustrating. I mean, is the message you think that people should still keep applying for loans, kind of get in the queue and hope that they're able to replenish that on, on the back end? Because we were, we were this close towards that getting replenished last week with $200, $250 billion and no deal. So is that money coming now or not? Well, it's hard to say. Wells Fargo did say that it would continue to work on applications and have them ready to submit to the SBA if and when additional funding does come. But again, even $250 billion, the other question I pose, is that even enough? As I said, 30 million small businesses, 1.6 million loans ate up this entire fund. Now, we aren't sure even if that accounts for 1.6 million small businesses because one entrepreneur could have multiple businesses with different tax ID numbers. So how many people actually got access to this funding? Who are they? You know, what, what sectors of the economy did they go to? We, we have some of these details are starting to trickle out from the SBA. We do know the average loan size was $240,000, but there are so many unanswered questions, Kelly, it, up to and including when this additional funding could be coming. Yep, absolutely. Kate, keep us posted. Thanks. Kate Rogers with the latest there. Let's talk more about this. My next guest says the night of April 3rd was one of the most momentous in his bank's 108-year history. In a new op-ed on CNBC.com, he says they've been working around the clock ever since and that Main Street banks like his are the best way to help Main Street businesses. For more, I'm joined by John Steinmetz. He's CEO of Texas-based Vista Bank, which has processed more than $100 million in PPP loans. John, it's good to see you. Welcome. And what happens now that the program, all the funds have been earmarked? Well, Kelly, thank you for the opportunity to join you on behalf of community banks, not only in Texas, but around the country. Uh, obviously, as, as your uh, guests have stated, you know, uh, earmarks did run out uh, as of this today. Uh, and we're hopeful that uh, Congress will step up and assist the small businesses that uh, have been left behind. But at Vista Bank, we are continuing to process in the queue and be ready to, pro- uh, to provide those services to the small businesses and most importantly, the real people that work for those small businesses as they uh, enter this, these challenging times in our, in our economy. You are. So basically, and can you give us a sense of all the people who have come to, to ask for, to demand, uh, have demand for a loan, in other words, what percentage of those do you think 
are approved and filled? Are we 25 percent, 50 percent, 75 percent of the way there? Because that's going to have implications for how much more money is needed. Well, there's a question as to whether or not uh, those that have been approved or in the queue are going to be funded. Uh, we have been working, as you stated, around the clock. First funding was at 3.30. Uh, there were other community banks funding immediately at 12.01. Um, but I think as it pertains to uh, the appropriations and, and when those funds are going to be available, we've been funding at a pretty rapid pace. Uh, there's been a lot of gloom uh, with respect to you know, the SBA and, and the regulatory bodies. But I'll tell you personally, we have seen uh, not only community banks across the country work together, but we've also uh, had the opportunity to see all the interagencies, the Treasury, the administration work diligently to essentially get as many of these businesses funded as possible and, and provide us the greatest chance to keep uh, the hardworking, hardly, hard-trained uh, employees that I remind you are real people. These are not numbers on a balance sheet. These are numbers not rolling across the bottom of your screen. Mm -hmm. These are people that are not currently in, in the unemployment line. So I would um, strongly encourage Congress to step up and uh, not play partisan politics and get involved in what is ultimately going to either be a continued plan that of success or one that expands unemployment going forward. Exactly. And so in a word, has everybody who showed up and asked for a loan been able to get one at this point? You know, there have been some that, quite frankly, weren't prepared, and so they were not able to uh, participate in the program. One of the challenges that I would, I would share with your viewers is, you know, some of those businesses have been uh, deemed essential, such as, as banks. And so we have, uh, you know, th they're less prepared, those small businesses, and haven't had CFOs, uh, CPA, accounting firms, preparing many of the, of the documents that uh, were available for uh, to, to apply for the uh, program. And so that's one of the reasons um, I'm hopeful that, again, the, the, the program is funded, uh, because I do believe it's working. Mm. I mean, look, we can, we can focus on the things that are not working, but these are real people trying their very best uh, to make things work. And at Vista Bank, our board of directors and, and our stakeholders uh, deemed it to be extremely necessary to help the communities we serve, regardless of whether or not they are clients yeah. uh, currently. Yeah, no, I, I, that's actually one of the last things I wanted to ask you, which is, and you've really emphasized this point, do you think there's a difference between the way community banks are able to handle and disperse this money relative to the, the major banks? Because it sounds like you think there is a difference, and I, I'm curious what that is. Well, Kelly, I, th I think five years ago, you know, we sat around the boardroom and, and wrestled with whether or not there was even really a place for community banks with all the attention that, that fintech companies and, and big banks um, oftentimes receive with technology that rivals the Pentagon and global uh, call centers, you know. And, and I think what we've seen through this process is uh, when called upon, uh, small businesses um, that act more like startups, we call them uh, community banks, are willing to step up and uh, help Main Street, hopefully in turn uh, help Wall Street. But this has been an incredible process to walk, watch everyone work together. It's very unfortunate, as you know, it doesn't discriminate. And uh, I am very optimistic about where uh, this program and our economy in the future is going. One interesting uh, sort of caveat, John, I believe, is that a lot of banks now have to hold, is it 5% of the loans that they're extending in order? I think the idea is to have some skin in the game to kind of make sure you're not just throwing money around willy-nilly, but that you're, you know, kind of a partner in making some of these decisions. Are you concerned about being left holding the bag if this money is not repaid, if, if the economy or the virus worsens and, and people have to 
close up shop and and can't make you whole on the, on these loans. Sure, I think that's I think that's a very fair question. Um, it's two pronged. One, the Fed did roll out a uh, paycheck protection funding facility that allows banks to access funding sources to allow us to continue to uh, provide liquidity to these to these small business owners that uh, range, by the way, at Vista Bank, we've made loans from fourteen hundred dollars to seven and a half million dollars. And, you know, those range from two employees to three hundred and forty eight employees. And so I think it's 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 something that uh, obviously community bankers, uh, our associations work diligently on, but the Treasury and the, and the Fed and all the governmental agencies, State uh, the bank, Banking Department of Texas, have ensured really that we are held harmless uh, as long as we practice uh, sound and, and safe banking practices. So it's not something we're, we're real concerned about at this point. We're more concerned about getting money to these small business owners that are risking capital on a daily basis to ensure uh, their employees and their companies uh, remain solvent in the future. Yeah, well, like you said, John, one of the biggest challenges your bank has faced in over 100 years. So that certainly gives us some perspective. Thanks for your work, and then thanks for joining me this afternoon. Thank you, ma'am, for the opportunity to join you today. John Steinmetz with Vista Bank in Texas. Coming up, protests are erupting in states across the country as people want the government to reopen. North Carolina is one of them, and we'll be speaking with one of their congressmen who says he's got a plan to make these reopenings happen. Plus, a number of big-name retailers are caught in the middle of a hot debate. Should they be rescued if they were close to collapse before coronavirus? We'll get into that. And as we head to break, remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back in two. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get the very latest now in the coronavirus pandemic. Rahel Solomon is back with the headlines at this hour. Rahel? Hello again, Kelly. G7 leaders are pledging to do whatever necessary to ensure an economic rebound following the coronavirus crisis. The Washington Post is reporting that millions of Americans have yet to receive their $1,200 stimulus checks or they received the wrong amount of federal aid due to system glitches. Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker getting choked up yesterday during a virus briefing when talking about how his best friend could not hold a funeral for his mother after she died of COVID-19. He said they had a good relationship. That didn't make the fact that it was an extraordinarily painful process for their family to go through this loss of a critical ritual that people believe in and 
hold on to that's this chance to say goodbye. And the governor adding there that it's important that families don't leave anything unsaid. Of course, that's a harsh reality for a lot of people these days, Kelly. As always, for more coronavirus coverage, you can head to our website, cnbc.com. Yeah, that's so tough. We're going to talk a little bit more about uh, this. Rahel, thanks so much. Now, protests are beginning in a number of cities around the country as more and more Americans say they want to reopen the economy and get back to work. North Carolina is one of the states with protests picking up some steam. They've seen more than half a million people lose their jobs in just the past month. Now, Representative Greg Murphy is pushing the governor to open the state following certain rules and guidelines. But is it too soon to open any economy? Congressman Murphy joins me now. It's good to see you, sir. And I like the detail in your proposal. Tell us what you have in mind for restaurants, for barbershops and so forth. Well, I think it's important that during this entire crisis that we study uh, what we're doing while we're doing it, looking at uh, what populations are most at risk, most susceptible. And I think it's important that we keep those sheltered in place really until they're therapeutics. But I think if you look at the under 65 who are otherwise healthy, let's look at our economy because there's some very bad health effects that we can continue to have if we continue the shelter in place. So why don't we open up our barbershops? Why don't we open up our salons? stagger appointments, make sure our stylists and our barbers are wearing masks. The same thing in restaurants. You can keep maximum of four people to a table, every other table. Um, you know, try to try to get back into our economy slowly. I'm really uh, pushing that we continue some of the safeguards that we have in place, those people most at risk. But otherwise, we really do need to start getting back to some semblance of normalcy. And I think we can, using the data that we've learned so far, I think we can do that. You know, why would you say to people that it's important that we start to make some of these measures, start to reopen the economy? Why is that a risk worth taking? Well, because, um, you know, with any of this, you know, I'm a surgeon. I've been one for 30 years. We talk about risks and benefits. I am hearing overloaded um, from constantly from individuals who are losing their life savings. They're They're in despair. They're just anxious. And so there is a balance here. You know, we can't just chase the shiny nickel down one road. I do feel that a lot of folks are not getting the health care that they need. Mental health, uh, cancer follow-ups, heart follow-ups. We're, we're chasing the, the one thing that's really, you know, on the, on the top burner right now. But we really have to have perspective, not only of health care needs, but for also folks' mental, mental health. If we reopen and nobody shows up to restaurants, to even some of the, you know, the shops that you mentioned, what happens? In other words, if we wait a little bit longer, do you think there's a better chance that people actually return to these establishments and keep them going? No, I, I personally don't think so. I think that it's going to take a couple weeks for uh, restaurants, uh, shops, small shops to get back in the mindset of opening back up. They're going to have to order supplies. Um, and then it's also going to have to get into the mindset of individuals that it's OK to come out. You know, consumer confidence will take a while to rebound. So this isn't something that April 29th, you can just turn the faucet off and all of a sudden April 30th, everything is OK. It's going to be have to be a gradual process. But it is a process that, in my opinion, we've learned enough from from other countries and from our own experience that we can safely begin to start. You know, a lot of this also seems to hinge on the availability of tests. Uh, Obviously, if there were a vaccine, that would be, you know, a whole other story. So are you disappointed that we haven't been able to get that capacity, uh, you know, up and running more quickly? You know, would that make a big difference in how you feel about the safety of taking these steps? Or do you think we could do it anyway? Well, I think there are some. Yeah, I mean, we're all frustrated with the uh, the lack of testing. But I mean, I think that the uh, the 
increased that we, and the number that we've had has increased by leaps and bounds. These tests are not the easiest things in the world. It's not like dipping your you know, finger in water and saying it's wet. We've increased those tremendously. That will be the ultimate goal, to have what they call point-of-care testing, where if somebody comes into the hospital, you can know immediately if they've been exposed or if they have the virus, or something called surveillance testing when we're out in the communities seeing if we have viral outbreaks. That's the ultimate goal. But I do think, again, looking at this intelligently, there are places in our segments of our society and economy that we can open up uh, safely. Would you go back uh, to your favorite restaurant if you were allowed to? I think with the, with the uh, 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 correct precautions, yes. Yeah. Congressman Murphy, thanks. It's such a complex issue. Uh, we really appreciate you joining us. It's very complex. There's no right answers. Playing the blame game and the guessing game does no one any good. Uh, we're literally you know, learning as we go. But I think that's important. We are learning as we go, and we have to be able to adapt. All right. Congressman Greg Murphy of North Carolina, thank you, sir. Thank you. We have a news alert from Facebook. The company announcing it'll cancel any large company events with more than 50 people through June of next year of 2021. Take a look at Facebook shares. They're down 2%. The company is also extending its policy of no business travel through at least June of this year. So there again, more economic implications, even as we talk about trying to reopen. Coming up, seeing stars. When you think streaming, Netflix, Amazon, and HBO may be the first names that come to mind, but maybe it should be stars. The CEO joins us with a look at the big growth they're seeing right now, far more than its premium competitors. Plus, a look at the next big tech theme that investors will be betting on in a post-COVID world. We're back in two minutes. Welcome back. Let's take a look at the market right now. We're coming off the lows when we were down almost 300 points. The Dow's down 124 right now, or half a percent, and the S&P has turned positive. It's up two and a half points. The Nasdaq more significantly higher by 75 points. It's been the standout of the past week. It's nearly a percentage higher today. In terms of sectors, uh, the laggards again include energy, where crude just hovering below that $20 a barrel mark. Financials struggling with low bond yields and a, a flatter yield curve. Industrials also weaker as well. We got that weak Philly Fed report this morning. Meantime, healthcare and consumer discretionary are your leadership. They're both up about one and a half percent today. And let's check in on shares of Lionsgate. They might be lower today, but they're up more than 40 percent over the past month, in part thanks to the success of its stars unit. Julia Borson joins me with a closer look at that. Julia. Kelly, that's right. Stars benefiting from the timing of a new series of Outlander, its hit series, as well as the debut of films, including Once Upon a Time in Hollywood on the platform. Now, average viewership on the Stars app is up 44% compared to the average in the weeks before shelter at home orders began. And viewing on the flagship Stars channel is up 33%, with a combined increase of 35% across both linear and on demand streaming. Now, the Stars app, which usually costs $9 a month, it's now just Counted to $5 a month for a three-month period, has seen a 142% increase in new customer additions since coronavirus stay-at-home orders began. Kelly, back over to you. Well, Julia, stay right there. Let's bring in the CEO of Stars, Jeff Hirsch. Uh, Jeff, it's great to have you here. To me, the, the challenge for all these streaming services and Stars included is how do you keep people around? This is such a hit-driven business. Yeah, it's a great question. First of all, thank you for having me on this morning. I'm excited to be here. Uh, it's a it's a hit-driven business, but I think the the world has changed significantly from the days where one hit show could make a network, and now you need a very a portfolio approach uh, with the click-in and click-out world that you have in the digital uh, digital apps today. So it's a portfolio approach of content that really keeps consumers on the service coming back week after week after week. 
And so we have shows like Outlander, we have shows like The Spanish Princess, The White Princess, The White Queen, that continue to have that audience go from week to week to week. And we feel really good about uh, our acquisition as well as our churn metrics because of that. Now, Jeff, it's, it's Julia here. It's so much easier for consumers to drop a service when they're using an a la carte app rather than dropping their whole cable bundle. As more of your customers shift to your, to your app and to that platform, are you concerned about all the competition from the new services such as HBO Max launching next month? In addition to the fact that people are paying for Netflix, as they have all of these services, is that going to put more pressure on your churn as some of your hit shows wrap up their seasons? You know, we look at the world in the three tiers of services. There's the broad base, or what we like to call basic streaming tier, which is the Netflix, the Amazons, the Hulus, uh, soon to be the HBO Max, the Peacocks that just announced the launch this week, soft launch this week. We see those as, as services that are looking to become the first SVOD service in the home. Really, we call them broad-based basic streaming services. So they're looking to replace the charters, the DirecTVs, the dishes in the home. We're not in that game. We don't compete in that game. We've always been sold as kind of a premium add-on on top of broad-based television. And so if you think about stars from a programming point of view, we're not ad-supported. We're bespoke. We're very tailored. We're adult uh, with great stories like Outlander. And we see ourselves as a complementary service to all these broad-based streaming services that have been out there. But, Jeff, if you look at what's happening with consumer spending right now and economic pressure, do you and you are part of the, the TV cable bundle um, as an add on service. Are you concerned about cord cutting and how would that impact your business? You know, as a premium service, we've never been 100 percent penetrated like a, a, a true ad supported network. And so so there's a lot of opportunity for us to continue to grow on the traditional linear side as well as on the digital side. Uh, we've transitioned our business from a bundled uh, package business on Comcast to an a la carte business, and we're seeing great growth on that platform right now. And so we think there's a great opportunity as more of our programming comes online to grow on both sides of the business. Which is more profitable for you, having people subscribe through the, through the app a la carte or having them do it through a cable pa package, through pay TV? So the, the new services, uh, you know, as we said, as the, as the business transitions from the traditional side to the digital side, uh, Stars does become a more profitable company. And just uh, looking forward, as you look at your uh, series lineup and what's coming ahead, obviously you have shows ready for now, but production in Hollywood has been entirely shut down. How long are you okay for, and at what point would the production shutdown start to impact your shows? You know, we are in unprecedented times for our industry. Uh, I, I've been really amazed in terms of the creative community and how they've used technology to keep uh, shows moving, whether it's virtual writer room, virtual editing, virtual sound mixing. And so we've been able to continue to uh, work on shows that have been post-production. Stars is fortunate because the way of our production schedules are we usually work a year in advance. And so most of our shows that will come online this year are in post. And so uh, we don't see us having an interruption this year. Right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and I'm sure we will learn more after Lionsgate reports its earnings next month. Jeff Hirsch, CEO of, CEO of Stars. Kelly, I'm going to send it back over to you. Yeah, uh, interesting. Did not know uh, how well they were doing. Julia, thanks. Coming up, billionaire Barry Diller says everyone should get a bailout, but the government doesn't agree, and many of the big retailers aren't qualifying for assistance. We'll have a closer look at who's being left out and why. The exchange continues after this. I will. Welcome back. Let's get to our calls of the day. Hi, everybody. We begin with Kraft Heinz. 
which was upgraded by Wells Fargo to overweight with a $38 target. Analysts saying investors can benefit from the extreme negativity out there. They say Kraft Heinz portfolio is far from off-trend and that their internal savings can fund reinvestments. They add the 6% dividend yield will provide some income as the turnaround takes hold. Kraft Heinz shares up 2.5%. Next, in keeping with the stay-at-home theme, Roku initiated by Berenberg today as a buy with a $137 target. That's 30% upside. They say Roku will benefit from the increase in streaming and from a shift in TV ad revenues from linear to digital. They note Roku is a leader and important partner for content producers navigating the shift. And Roku is up 12% to 126 today, a little less than 30% upside now. Uh, finally, Twitter downgraded today to neutral by J.P. Morgan. This is an interesting call. They gave it a $29 target. They believe Twitter's risk-reward is less attractive at these levels and that near-term revenue decline could be steeper than competitors, given its heavy dependency on product launches, events, and sports. They say Twitter will also face ad system challenges in a downturn. Twitter shares just under 27 today, down 3%. Well, as the debate over who should get a bailout continues, Expedia and IAC chair Barry Diller weighing in on the topic earlier today, saying no one should be left out. You drive down streets and you see big cities, small cities, and you'd see nothing is open and they're ghost towns. The damage that is being done every day is enormous. Everybody needs to be bailed out of this one-time thing and we'll worry about paying the bills later. Well, many of the big retailers are being left out of government help and struggling to pay their bills right now. Courtney Reagan is here with a look at who isn't getting government assistance and why. Courtney? Hi there, Kelly. So many big, well-known household retail names that have thousands of employees, hundreds or even thousands of stores, vendor contracts, rental agreements, they're not eligible for either the Fed's credit facilities or the CARES Act through the Treasury because their debt isn't investment grade as of March 22nd. You've got Macy's, Gap Inc., Elbrands, Foot Locker, Bed Bath & Beyond, Abercrombie & Fitch, and others that currently have debt that is junk rated, even though those retailers' balance sheets are at least stronger than names like JCPenney, Neiman Marcus, J. Crew, J. Jill, GameStop, and others that also have junk rated debt but on a much lower on the speculative rating scale. Now, the National Retail Federation is communicating with both President Trump and Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin asking for liquidity for all, noting that retailers that were solvent before the crisis could be pushed to insolvency through no fault of their own, but as a result of this virus. The NRF says, look, officials are responsive, they're accessible, they're listening, at least, to an array of perspectives. One concern, of course, is that if junk bond-rated companies do get access to this aid, that would mean that a company like Macy's would be eligible, along with a company like JCPenney. And JCPenney was struggling. It was sort of right there on the brink before this crisis hit. So that opens up a little bit of controversy over which companies should be saved. Kelly? No, Courtney, I think this gets right to the heart of the whole rescue. I mean, it's either you could say, look, we're not picking winners and losers. There's money for everybody. This was nobody's fault. And that would be one approach. Or you could say, oh, we're not going to try to help the weakest of the weak because, it, you know, it's their own problem. And I understand the government doesn't want blowback for helping people like JCPenney, who are probably going away anyhow. But once they start picking winners and losers, I, that also to me seems like, a, like it'd be hugely problematic. 
Exactly. It's such a sticky situation, Kelly. And if you look at companies like Macy's, their debt was downgraded about a month ago. So before this outbreak really took on steam and they were given that junk status rating, albeit higher on that scale, but they've got more than 100,000 employees. They've got hundreds of locations. They've got rental agreements. They've got vendor contracts. So if something happens and JC, or excuse me, Macy's gets pushed into a dire circumstance, the ripple effect throughout retail could be pretty immense. But I understand that's a department store in a different balance sheet standing than a JCPenney. So Again, right to your point of picking up winner or a loser or just giving liquidity to all. This is a tough one. What about, Courtney, in terms of private sector solutions here? You know, it's interesting that you look at distressed debt investors and they are starting to get out there and try to raise big funds. Could there be a role to play by private equity or by retail Mm -hmm. itself through consolidation? You know, something that doesn't just rely on the binary relief or no relief from the government. I think that's a great point. I do think that events like this, albeit out of sort of business control, at least opens up opportunities for some investment from private industry, consolidation, M&A. We know that there are companies out there that sort of look at strong brands, but within what you would call a broken company, if it's sort of broken operationally, but the brand itself is strong and there could be some opportunities to buy the intellectual property. So I do think we're going to ultimately see that happen. I think the concern is just it happening so much to so many all at once, Hmm. and then the ripple effects there, or even missed opportunities to to have those purchases, those acquisitions, those mergers, because frankly, it's just so messy and it's happening so quickly. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Courtney, thanks. We appreciate it. It'll be interesting to see what happens. Courtney Reagan there. Coming up from Time Savers, Time Creators. That's what one industry watcher says will be the next big tech theme for investors. He'll tell us what he means and which names to watch right after this. Welcome back. Morgan Stanley, CEO James Gorman, speaking with CNBC today, uh, saying he sees the coronavirus-induced global recession lasting for the entirety of this year and 2021. Gorman telling our Wilfred Frost, quote, if I were a betting man, it's somewhere between a U or L-shaped recovery. I would say through the end of next year, we're going to be working through the global recession. Again, that was James Gorman uh, to our Wilfred Frost. Now, Morgan Stanley, whose shares down just under 1%, reported earnings today and warned that a sole bright spot for the financial industry, robust trading results, may also prove to be fleeting. Uh, You can see, again, the shares trading lower and not just Morgan Stanley. It's been a rough week for the financials altogether. Here's a look at the biggest gainers in the S&P. This week, it's Netflix and Amazon in the lead, along with some other tech stocks, seeing double-digit returns. Netflix is up 19% since Monday. Some of these names may have helped us save time in the past, but my next guest says there's another theme emerging that investors should be watching. I'm joined by James Chuckmuck. He's a partner at Clockwise Capital. James, it's good to see you. So Amazon in particular probably helped us save time, but you're saying now we should look to companies that create time. How does that work? Yeah, exactly. So what we saw, the reason that all these companies accrued so much value, the big tech names, is because they save people time. But right now we're in a situation where I think we're in store for, for a productivity boom, unlike anything anyone uh, ever seen. And, and what's happening is, in, over the last couple of months, I think we've pulled forward uh, future technology in a way where businesses have a taste of what it's like to operate in a distributed fashion, and consumers and people and the constituents have a taste of what it's like to live in a much more fluid uh, type of life. And I, right now we're talking a lot about these names like Slack and Zoom, the working mm-hmm. from home economy, but it goes much beyond that. 
So that's interesting because the stay-at-home basket, so to speak, has been a popular one. But a lot of that includes stuff like Netflix that, frankly, isn't really helping create any time. I really like your idea that we're on. We're going to see a huge productivity boom, especially after we just heard James Gorman talking about a global recession through the end of next year. So how do these companies accelerate us into the future? And what does that future look like? Who else should we be investing in? Sure. I think it's going to come in places we don't even expect. You know, so you look at a couple of examples. GE can 3D print an engine with 12 parts when it used to take 855 parts. You have Nokia in partnership with Lufthansa able to uh, service engines remotely and, and do so in a way that you don't have to travel anymore. You know, so all of this uh, a cre- uh, a new time will be created because time for us has been completely structured. You, know, you, you wake up, you go to the office, you come home and you watch the TV and you go to bed. If you can add fluidity to that time and, and find time in areas that didn't previously exist, that's what we mean by create time, you'll be able to deploy that capital and time and resources in a way that never had been thought before. Yeah. And it's really rethinking the principles of how business is conducted. It has a lot of positive um, externalities, too. Yeah, I didn't mean to jump in there, but I'm just thinking about when commutes are shifting. It's not all nine to five work. It's better for the environment. You know, there's better traffic. The idea of being at work four hours that might be at any time of day instead of the same nine to five schedule is really attractive. I just want to be clear. Are you telling me that that GE is your uh, (laughs) investing name of the future? The other names on here include Lufthansa, uh, Nokia. You know, there's some bold calls. No, I was I was make, uh, giving examples of, of of creating time in areas that we don't really talk about. Right now, we're just talking about video conferencing from home, and and really the way we think about it from the historical analog is that uh, these companies have essentially built the railroad, the infrastructure, the current big tech establishment. The new companies that will emerge will be able to ride those rails and 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 uh, and, and leverage them in a way we haven't seen. So. You know, we're, it, it goes into healthcare and so financial services. You know, like Robinhood raising more money, uh, Square enabling people to think about, rethink how they're um, managing their consumer data, and and in a way that you know, healthcare. You know, thinking about you could have you know AirPods te- check your temperature, mm-hmm. and in a way that uh, you'll be able to um, uh, reduce time spending um, you know, with your doctor's visits. So there's so many different, like you, know, like you were saying, externalities in, in a way that we're not really thinking about today. We're just really focused on the stay at home. But if companies and people rethink how they spend their time and their first principles, I think that we're going to be in store for something really big. So are the companies you're talking about even created yet? Or are you, know, are you basically saying to people, don't bet on FANG because it's going to break down in the future? Or do you have a clear sense yet of what those new companies you would bet on would be? Yeah, so right now, uh, some of them haven't even been created yet. We, we don't know what they are. But, you know, there's a Bill Gates quote, you know, people tend to overestimate what happens in two years and underestimate what happens in 10. I think in this case, that's going to be wrong. You know, with the big tech infrastructure, the establishment, I think those are now essential services. You absolutely need them. So I think premium valuations will actually be awarded there. But looking into the future, you know, the obvious examples that are right now um, uh, in the market you know, I think you look at a company like Slack, it re, uh, uh, completely changes the way in which you uh, communicate, both internally and externally, and, and, and things of that nature. And um, that's where we're really uh, betting on, the, on yeah. the kind of the next chapter. Well, it's such a, a hopeful theme. If nothing else, we needed it today. <laughs> James, yeah. thanks so much. Thank you. James Chuckmuck is a partner with Clockwise Capital with some thoughts 
on what will replace Fang in the future. Uh, speaking of which, Verizon announcing today it will buy video conferencing company Blue Jeans Network, reportedly paying less than half a billion dollars for its arrival of Zoom. Unlike Zoom or Skype, Blue Jeans isn't free to users. The company's platform is aimed at businesses, with Disney reportedly being one of them. Uh, Verizon says the platform will be deeply integrated into its 5G roadmap to focus on high-growth areas like telemedicine and distance learning. Well, our breaking news coverage continues after this break. I'll join Tyler Matheson for Power Lunch. We're going to talk to the president of the Business Roundtable, Josh Bolton. He sent a letter to the White House this week outlining what corporate America needs to see happen before big companies can feel comfortable sending their employees back to work. This must be interview right after the break. Stay with us here on CNBC. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 